Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. And welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you here on the Chorus Radio Network. A few other things we'll get to uh, before the top of the hour. But I want to turn our attention to uh, a conversation about Canada's history around the Vietnam War. Obviously, Canadians are well aware of the Vietnam War. You know, we've been besieged with all kinds of, um, you know, American coverage over the years. Obviously, the news coverage at the time, all the different uh, movies and shows that have been made about the Vietnam War. But we don't think of it as Canadian history. Obviously, Canada didn't officially participate in the Vietnam War. But that doesn't mean there was no Canadian involvement in the uh, Vietnam War. There's an important new book uh, on the subject that, that brings a lot of this little-known history to light. It's called The Devil's Trick, How Canada Fought the Vietnam War. Joining us to talk about the book uh, is its author, best-selling author, uh, John Boyko. Joins us uh, on the line here this afternoon. Uh, John Great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. So what, what got you interested in this story in the first place? Well, you know, my last book was called Cold Fire, Kennedy's Northern Front, and it was all about how President Kennedy affected Canada and uh, the Diefenbaker and Pearson era. And when I was in Boston at the Kennedy Library doing archival research, I kept coming across conversations that the president had with the two prime ministers and, and other lower-level uh, conversations about the Vietnam War, and I kept wondering, why are they talking so much about Vietnam when it was yeah. very much the American War? And that led me to do more research more research, and I shocked myself with how intricately involved we were with Vietnam and how much Vietnam affected Canada. So in terms of the government-to-government uh, -government relationship, was there any kind of American pressure? Did they want us to be involved? They absolutely did. It was partly the Americans in 1954 when uh, the French had finally decided to end their long, centuries-long colonial occupation of the area and left. And it was the great powers, including the United States, that decided to split up Vietnam into two halves and let the communists rule the north and the non-communists rule the south temporarily until an election could be held and then the French get out, and they decided that they needed a, a group of three countries to oversee that process. And the three countries that they decided would do that, one was Poland, and the second was uh, representing the communist world, the second was India, non-aligned, and the third was Canada. And it was the United States that wanted Canada to be that country. And so we were there in 1954 with Canadian soldiers and diplomats trying to make this work, Ten years before the Americans came in with, with, uh, with weapons. So the Americans wanted us involved in that way. The Americans wanted us to send soldiers to Vietnam. And both Diefenbaker and then Pearson said no to that. They wanted us to give more money to the government of South Vietnam. 
And we did a great deal of that, including building hospitals in South Vietnam run by Canadians. And they were the Americans were very happy that we were selling so much war material to the United States that was being used in Vietnam. The equivalent of about $2.5 billion a year in war material made in Canada and sold to the United States for use in Vietnam. So the Americans really wanted us to be involved even more than we were. Right. So even though we didn't officially participate, uh, we, we definitely supported the effort, didn't we? We absolutely did on, on that official basis. And there was another time in 1964 when President Johnson wanted to see if he could negotiate an end to the war before it actually got into the quagmire that we all recognize now. And they wanted a way to speak to the North Vietnamese, but there was no American ambassador in North Vietnam, no back-channel communication with Ho Chi Minh. So a Canadian was chosen. Lester Pearson, now the Prime Minister, agreed that Blair Seaborn, a very experienced diplomat, would go to North Vietnam. He met with the Vietnamese Prime Minister. They developed a deal that Seaborn then took back to the Americans and the Canadians, which would have given the Americans a way out of the Vietnam War with honor, without any of the deaths that we came to know. Johnson took a look at that deal and said no. So again, the Canadians offered the Americans a way out of the war before it began in a big way, and they refused to accept the way that Canada showed them. Now, a big part of this book is uh, telling the stories, and it, it's six very different perspectives, but through the eyes of, of individuals who, who certainly have a big part of this story to tell. Part of this story is the fact that Canadians, even though we didn't send Canadians to go fight in Vietnam, Canadians did go fight in Vietnam. I think some 20,000, I, I believe, and uh, you include the story of, of one of those. So how was it then that Canadians ended up on the ground in Vietnam? Well, I met uh, Doug Carey, who uh, was who lives outside of Ottawa, a place called Carlson Place, and he was one of about 20,000 Canadians who enlisted with the American services to go. Now, Doug Carey told me that the reason he went is that his father, all of his uncles, all of the male people that he grew up with, from teachers to people who worked at the gas station or barbershops, were all veterans of the Korean War, the uh, Second World War, and he believed it was just a part of growing up that you needed to do military service. And the only war in which to serve at the time, the only active war, was Vietnam. Others who I spoke with and uh, through research I found out, they wanted just like many young men a sense of adventure and won't it be great to come back in uniform and the girls will like me more See, young men have always been that young and stunned i think i know i was at 18 and the third reason was that we had been told as canadians and americans have been told that it is our duty to fight communism communism was coming to get us we needed to fight the communists where they were lest we'll be fighting them here and so a number of canadians signed up because that was the only act of war in which communists were being were being challenged at the moment so as a result of this between some people say as few as 15 some people say as much as 60 I think 20 is pretty close to so the 20,000 Canadians that fought in the Vietnam War. They fought and they suffered the same as Americans in, in the jungles, and they fought the PTSD when they arrived home. 
Another part of the story is obviously those Americans who didn't want to fight, who came to Canada. And we've definitely built up this narrative over the years that, you know, this was Canada's biggest connection to the wars, that we provided this safe haven for those who didn't believe in the war, didn't want to be drafted, and we welcomed them with open arms. But um, what, what gets left out of that narrative? Well, it is, and it's something that I thought I understood. Um, I, again, the number of, of people who came north to avoid the draft, the draft dodgers, or the number of people who were in American service and left the service in order to, to uh, come north, the deserters, if we lump them together as call them war resistors, about 30,000, some people say it could be high as 60 or 70,000, came north. And they really affected Canada's evolution because so many of them were university-educated people who became involved with the universities, the cultural industries, and a number of ways in Canada that affected our development. It also affected our anti-Americanism that was growing because so many Canadians did not want them. That's the surprising part to me, is that a number of polls taken throughout the country in the various years, about 68 to 75 percent of Canadians at any one time said, we don't want them here. One, they're American. Two, they're young, and their long hair and crazy clothes seem to be mixing in with the long hair and crazy clothes and bad music of our own young people and turning our own young people against us. So it really surprised me how many Canadians did want not want those American war resistors here. But what was the government's position? I mean, obviously, it would be awkward if, if you know, Canada's official position was that we would, you know, essentially grant amnesty or refugee status to uh, American war deserters. So that, that couldn't have been our official poli- uh, policy. Well, you know what? Our official policy was that we were not looking at the border as to whether they were draft dodgers at all. Uh, you were simply a young American who wished to come to Canada. And the status of you and the draft board was not asked at the border. But the the people who were deserters, there was a clear indication from the uh, from the department, the immigration department, that said if a person is a deserter, turn them away. A number of them still managed to get through, and that law, due to a great deal of pressure by, by Canadians, was eventually changed so the deserters were allowed. But why we don't know exactly how many came is that neither the American nor the Canadian government kept track of how many of the American people who were moving north at the time were draft dodgers or deserters. All we know is the raw numbers of how many came, and we can extrapolate from that that it was about 30,000 that came to the United uh, came to Canada. And what was really interesting is President Jimmy Carter in 1977, a couple of days after he became president, uh, decided to give amnesty not to the deserters, but to all of the draft dodgers. And he said, you can come home. And American film crews went to a number of, of border crossings, thinks they would see the waves of Americans going back home, and they were disappointed because these people were already home, and they stayed. The vast majority stayed and, and became Canada, became Canadian. Interesting. Now, the post-war period especially also led to many new Canadians, and, and certainly, you know, there's there's been much told about the refugees that came to Canada from Vietnam post-1975 and all, all of the chaos of the fall of the South, but... There's there's much more to that story because maybe we weren't quite as welcoming as as we like to believe, and maybe it wasn't necessarily all that easy for refugees to to come to Canada. What about that side of the story? 
Yeah, again, I thought I understood this. I thought I understood that what we pejoratively called the boat people, all of the Vietnamese refugees that left when the Americans left, that was the first wave. They were usually people with some money behind them. The middle-class refugees were almost all in the late 1970s of Chinese origin, and it was the Vietnamese government, as a result of problems with China at the time, turned against those people. Uh, They stole their property. They uh, destroyed their businesses. They were putting them into what Orwell would be proud were called re-education camps. And so they needed to run for their lives. I tell the story of Rebecca Trin, who I got to know. She lives in Calgary. And her family were typical of the hardships that they faced getting over here. And then my naive notion was as soon as they arrived in Canada, all would be well. But no, again, the polling at the time indicated that the vast majority of Canadians did not want them here. They didn't want them here because they were immigrants, because they were refugees, but they didn't want them because they were Asian. And the discrimination, the racism with which they had to deal when they arrived was stunning to me. And I guess it reminded me that we like to believe as Canadians that we don't harbor a good deal of systemic racism and discrimination, but it was there. And the refugees that came did what almost all refugees did. They worked hard, they learned English, and they succeeded. Uh, Many of us know, uh, if we watch the CBC News, uh, Judy Trin, who is a reporter for CBC, that's Rebecca yeah. Trin's daughter, who was of that right. family that came over when she was four years old. Well, there's some important history in this book. It's called The Devil's Trick, How Canada Fought the Vietnam War. John Boyko, it's been great chatting with you uh, here today. Thanks so much for making some time for us. Excellent. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. All the best, John. Uh, there you go. That's uh, John Boyko, his uh, latest. Uh, it's called The Devil's Trick, How Canada Fought the Vietnam War. And so, yeah, there's, there's a whole story here in a lot of different contexts about Canada's connection to the war. And, you know, some aspects of this that I think we built in some convenient narratives, there's more to the story. But I think the aspect about, you know, Canadians going over to fight in Vietnam, that's a part of the story that, that hasn't been told as much. You know, some 20,000, maybe not quite that much, maybe even more. It's hard to know for sure. You know, part of what he notes in his book that... You know, the Americans at, at one point were more or less recruiting Canadians. There was uh, one recruiting station that was near the Quebec border that had a sign that said, uh, Bienvenue Canadians. So it's interesting, isn't it, that dynamic where you've got Canadians going across the border to go fight in Vietnam. You've got Americans coming across the border into Canada because they did not want to fight in Vietnam. So a lot of really fascinating history there. Certainly at the moment, when it comes to Canada's history, we're, we're having a, a moment. We're having a reckoning with the, uh, you know, some darker moments from our history. And, you know, perhaps it's unfair that this has been uh, left to the current generation to deal with. These matters probably should have been dealt with some time ago. Uh, but it is important to understand Canada's history, all of it, and the good and the bad. So the residential schools issue has been thrust back into the forefront uh, afterward last week of 200 or so unmarked burial sites found at the um, former residential school in Kamloops, which has now led to a conversation about those who had a hand in the residential school policy. Now, the premier this week was asked about that, now specifically about Canada's first prime minister, Johnny MacDonald, 
And obviously, as the founder of one of the founders of this country, a father of confederation, the first prime minister of this country, John A. MacDonald was a political giant of his era and had a hand in a lot of things that shaped this country for better and for worse. So how do we square that legacy with what we know? You know, for someone like Johnny McDonald, there are statues, there are buildings named after him, uh, schools named after him, roads named after him. You know, and other, other fathers of confederation too. Is the answer to end all of that, is the answer to rename those monuments, to take down these statues, is that the proper way of reconciling the historical record? Or next guest says not necessarily so. That maybe there's a more productive way of addressing all of this and, and finding some balance. Ken Coates is a senior fellow in Aboriginal and Northern Canadian Issues at the McDonald Laurier Institute, also Canada Research Chair in Regional Innovation, the Johnson Shiyama Graduate School of Public Policy, University of Saskatchewan. Professor Coates, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Good to be with you again. So let me just get some general thoughts from you on kind of the, the moment we're at, the conversation we're having. Is, is it a necessary conversation? It's absolutely a necessary conversation. You know, and consider the alternative. The alternative is to assume that the heroes of the past are unblemished characters with no flaws, made no bad decisions, were just, just absolutely amazing people who did everything right. And one of the things we've discovered in history is is a word we use in a history about hagiography, where you where you convert and uh, you know people into into sort of very you know famous, wonderful, amazing uh, creatures that are are almost like saints. We know that's wrong, and so it's yeah. an important conversation to have to focus on these issues and talk through these characters and these personalities who shape shape the country so profoundly. I mean, you know, having heroes makes for better stories. And, and I suppose, you know, being able to point to the people who are responsible for things maybe makes it easier to understand. But is it a mistake to, to create heroes as opposed to here's what happened, you know, and, and here's the good things that happened. Here's the bad things that happened. And, and, you know, here's who had a role in all of this. Does history need heroes? Well, history needs needs. History, society actually needs to understand what occurred. And absolutely, in many ways, we need heroes. And we have people who, these people shaped our lives, they shaped our country, shaped our province, shaped our, our society in different ways. We need to know who those people are, because they actually remind us of the fact that individuals can change the, the course of history, that, that the world we have now was created for us by people who made mistakes in the past, made incredibly important decisions in the past, and that, and that every aspect that we have uh, was actually something that was created at a certain you know point in time. Use Alberta as an example. Uh, the Natural Resources Transfer Act in 1930 actually returned control of natural resource wealth to the to the provinces, um, and to the province of Alberta and Saskatchewan. Much of Al what became Alberta and Alberta's great success as a province was targeted back to something that happened in 1930. We need to know the processes, the people that were involved, the political parties, the decision-making, and all that kind of stuff. We're a better country when we have a rich understanding. Other countries, Australia, New Zealand, Britain, uh, Japan, have a much richer sense and a much more robust debate about, about the past than we have in Canada. So I, I look at this, and it, it's hard to take at one level. It, it's very frustrating to sort of Listen to people sort of painting, painting the, over these, these memorials and toppling statues. That's too extreme a response. But my gracious, do we ever need this conversation about who we want to celebrate, who we want to memorialize, who we want to remember, and in what context. 
And I, I personally have no problem with discovering that our, our so-called heroes of the past have blemishes. And I should also tell you that Canadians are pretty good at this. If you ask any high school kid, what do you know about Johnny McDonald? More students will tell you that he was our alcoholic prime minister than will tell you he was our first prime minister. Uh, the thing that we te- teach them, they remember, is that negative piece. Well, he was an alcoholic or had alcoholic pro- drinking problems because of some really harsh par- circumstances in his life. And that didn't diminish the fact that he also did other things that were incredibly transformative and, and helped create Canada as a nation. So. We need that robust understanding. We need to pay attention to what's actually going on in the past. And then we need to listen to the pains of the future. So it's also also wrong to say, oh, you people, just shut up about Johnny McDonald. He was a great Canadian, never did anything wrong, and you shouldn't be whining and complaining. That's not fair either. You know, there's a history of what happened to Indigenous people that, that has been sort of kept in the background for way too long. It's important that we listen to that, understand it, debate and discuss with the people involved, come to a sort of a shared understanding of the future. You know, I'm really struck by the fact that somebody like um, Justice Murray Sinclair, a person for whom I have enormous respect as, a, as a, the head of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, sort of many times gone out of his way to say, you know, don't, don't spend time tearing down the people of the past. You know, don't, don't do that. You know, let's focus on how we move forward rather than how we sort of try to get retribution for something that may or may not have happened as you understand it. 150 or 160 years ago. Well, that's the thing. So, I mean, if we were building a brand new school or opening a new park and we we're trying to come up with a, a name for it, maybe we would think of other names or other people that, that we could name it after. And maybe John A. McDonald wouldn't necessarily be in that conversation. But the reality is there are all kinds of monuments that exist across the country, be it statues, schools, whatever, that bear his name. So wh- what do we do with that? Well, it's interesting. I, I, several things. Uh, first off, I think we should sort of put put a, um, a, a bit of a um, termination clause on every every name and sort of rethink the names from things from time to time. Um, and also be very careful when you're naming things in the first instance, but realize the fact that things do change over time. And we would memorialize other people now. We have a, we have a different set of values as a society. We're much more multicultural than we were when Johnny McDonald was sort of one of the only names we had to throw around. We have more prime ministers, we have more cabinet ministers, more premiers, we have a larger roster of things to draw from. We have a different groups of society to sort of show respect to and respect for. And so we, we should we should use that that I guess or that collection of options much more comprehensively than we do in the present. I think we, we get we have have a richer and ro- more robust society. So if you look at almost any community, Calgary is a really good example of this, you have enormous uh, suburban spread over the last 10 or 15 years. Go and take a look at the names that people have been using over the last little while. I know in my city of Saskatoon, we, we've gone back and picked up a, a much more diverse group of people, uh, female athletes, female politicians who weren't there before. One of the re- most recent bridges in, built in Saskatoon has the name of an Aboriginal chief. And this is a better, richer description of society as a whole. But we don't go back and get rid of everything that was done before. But every once in a while, it doesn't hurt to go back and, 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 and have a debate about all of this kind of stuff and to think about what names we should use and whether we should take some names off. Um, I think people have to be very cautious, though, because you're going to find yourself being sort of forced into decisions that you might feel uncomfortable. So, for example, in 1969, the Trudeau government gave serious consideration to getting rid of the uh, Indian status in Canada. 
They wanted to sort of eliminate the reserves, and which was following a model used in the United States in the, in the 1880s. And they thought, mm-hmm. we're going to get rid of them. Now, they didn't follow through on it. The Aboriginal protest was very strong. Um, but there's a lot of people who still feel very uncomfortable about Pierre Elliott Trudeau. Um, are we going to take the name off the airport in, in Montreal now as a consequence of that? Um, can we not recognize the fact that he, at least, and Jean Chrétien, uh, who future prime minister, realized they'd made a big policy mistake and they backed off of it? But still, the, the idea was out there that was outrageous even at the time, and they had to back down. Um, I, I forgive people some of their mistakes. Not everybody, not all the time. There are people who subsequently discovered they were abusive, for example, and I want that name off that building the next day. Um, yeah. But I think in the situation here, it, it also oversimplifies a much more complicated story about the role that John and McDonald played in Indigenous policy and, and, and in the creation of Canada. It's, it's, you can't reduce all of that activity over many, many decades down to something as simple as one policy issue. Um, let's find other ways to deal with that. Let's create memorials about residential schools. Let's create ways of commemorating and celebrating the, 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 the horrible experiences that they had and, and let, let the Indigenous people of Western Canada know we understand. Yeah, well said. Much more at uh, mcdonaldlaurier.ca. Uh, Ken Coates, thank you so much for joining us here today. Appreciate this. You're more than welcome. Take care. All right, you as well. There you go. Historian uh, Ken Coates, he's a senior fellow at the uh, McDonald-Laurier Institute, obviously named after both individuals. Uh, he's a senior fellow in Aboriginal and Northern Canada Issues, also Canada Research Chair uh, at the uh, Johnson Shayama Graduate School of Public Policy, University of Saskatchewan. So I, I think that's a productive way of looking at it. Look, I'm, I'm sure that there are probably plenty of Albertans who would happily tear down a Pierre Elliott Trudeau statue uh, were they to come across one in, in this province. I'm pretty sure none exist. But that's the point. It, it's okay to have a dim view of former prime ministers. It's okay to hate former prime ministers. Right? They're politicians. I'm sure, you know, if you go back, if you were to travel in a time machine and go look in on any of the election campaigns they ran in, you know, politics was pretty elbows up back in those days. I'm sure there were all kinds of uh, very harsh things being said about Johnny McDonald by his political opponents or Wilfrid Laurier, etc. But, and it was a point that the Premier made this week, which I thought was fair. There seems to be a disproportionate amount of this heaped on Johnny McDonald as opposed to subsequent prime ministers, Wilfrid Laurier included, which is, which is interesting. Now, obviously, there's been quite a conversation happening in Canada in recent days about the legacy of residential schools and the need to understand, better understand, you know, certainly the the grimmer side of this whole conversation. The fact that children died at these schools and the fact that children were buried in these schools. And we don't know the full extent of uh, how many exactly in the circumstances of all of these deaths because we just we haven't compiled all of this information. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission certainly did a lot of work in in shedding light on all of this, but even they were limited in uh, what they could do in terms of uh, determining the exact number of children who died and were buried and you know piecing together all of these records. So it, it is imperative that we fully understand and document all of this. And so that's going to involve a lot of work. I suspect we're going to see more research and trying to discover these uh, unmarked burial sites and then to try to piece together who these children were and what happened to them. So who should lead? Who should be involved in that investigation? Well, a group of Canadian lawyers has called on the International Criminal Courts 
to be involved in this investigation, to investigate not just Canada's government, but also the Catholic Church, the Vatican. So a letter has been sent to the ICC's chief prosecutor asking for an investigation to be launched. Well, joining us to talk more uh, about this call and why it's important to uh, approach this, uh, this whole question this way, uh, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, former member of the Alberta legislature and attorney Donna Kennedy-Glantz joins us on the line here this afternoon. Donna, thank you so much for making some time for us here. Welcome uh, to the program. Thank you, Rob. This is a pretty important topic, and I'm really grateful you'd open up to talking about it. Yeah, well, you're right. It absolutely is an important conversation. So we definitely need to get to the bottom of all of this. So what what's led you to the conclusion maybe that there needs to be some, you know, outside in, involvement, in this case, the ICC? Well, it's the history. I mean, we gestures have their place and we're, you know, lots of people are doing things to evidence their concern and putting flags at half mask and children's shoes on the steps of museums is important because it's 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 a heart thing. But as a lawyer, um, there are other things we can do. And I think the inflection point has been reached. Um, this event really shames us all into doing something. And Murray Sinclair, who is heading up the headed up the um, uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission, he he pointed to this when he when he spoke about his you know what he found and he and he and he spoke of genocide and I think a lot of us flinched. But this mass grave discovery, I think we need to listen to what he was saying and. We don't know these kids' names. If this was happening somewhere else in some other country, we would all go, What's go what the heck's going on? And in that commission, Rob, they asked the Vatican, they asked the Catholic Church, they asked the federal government to turn over all the records, everything you've got, so that we can figure out where there are mass graves, if they in fact exist. Because there were lots of hints about them in the stories. And there's just been foot dragging. And I guess what what led me to participate with this group to to champion this application to the International Criminal Court is is just a sense that we can't just stand here and go, oh well, you know, eventually we'll get the records. No, this is we've hit a we've this this discovery is a point in time where we need to do something differently. So what what can the ICC bring to the table in terms of finding answers, getting to the bottom of this, holding mm-hmm. people accountable? It's a good question. It's important. Um, and this isn't just a gesture. This isn't just, uh, you know, go find somebody else to wrap our own knuckles. That That's kind of, <laughs> I'm not interested in that. These folks do this all the time. The, the fellow who leads this up, the chief prosecutor, lives in the U.K., this is the kind of thing that they investigate routinely. Now, that would be a dreadful job to have, but they know how to do it. So, you know, records, how to access those records. They can compel those records to be put on the table, too, and that's important. And they also know how to go about doing this. Like, what kind of, of investigator do you need? We have them in Canada, absolutely. But it just gives us um, somebody who's got a total sense of how to do this well and and i guess there's also the added element of you know the the catholic church the vatican because that's certainly outside canada's jurisdiction is is that part of why we need maybe an international body involved here it's defensible on that basis and and there have been 
applications before to the ICC by Indigenous communities here in Canada in relation to the Vatican. But nothing has felt like this. Nothing has been this obvious, like a, a grave with 250 children's bodies in it that have no names and no stories and no record. Like, that's pretty strange. So I think it's it's a culmination of a whole bunch of different pieces. And it's a... It's an ability for Canadians to say, you know what, we, we do need to hold these people accountable. Um, this isn't partisan either. We did reach out to the leaders of all of the other political parties in Canada and the independents, which would include um, Jody Wilson-Raybould, to say, look, you know, come together on this as a coalition, but really this is not about partisanship. This is just about let's do this right. We're Canadians. We're all Canadians. Let's figure out how to deal with this blight on all of our reputations right now. Which we need to. I, I you know, I, I do wonder, though, I mean, because I think a lot of people might see this as, you know, a suggestion that Canada's incapable of this or, or that we're, you know, we're not willing to to get to the, the truth and, and get these answers and that we need this international involvement. So how, how do we reconcile that? Because I, I do think there is an earnest desire in Canada uh, to learn truths and to document all of this. I don't know, Rob. I agree with you. I mean, we've had we've had an apology in 2008. We set up the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in 2009. I beg you to find a better leader to 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 lead that than than Marie Sinclair. We had a lot of disclosure. We had a lot of people talking, but we just never got to the facts and we never got to all those records that are sitting in INEX offices and they're sitting in in you know church offices we need to be able to access those so i don't know I, it, maybe it's because people feel ashamed or that we'll just all go away or it's just a really tough thing to talk about but it, denial is just there's no more denial <laughs> it's over so mm-hmm. you know w- we have to do it so let's get help doing it if we need help. So how would this work then? So if the International Criminal Court agrees to get involved, do, do they need to get some kind of permission from the, the federal government? Or can they just you know, begin their work? How does, how does this all work? Well, actually, legally, and this is a bit of a labyrinth, so it's, it's, yeah. I won't bore you with all of the legislation, but it, it, we, are on, we have submitted to the jurisdiction of the International a criminal court. So if they decide that this is something that would be within their purview, they can do this. Um, and, you know, crimes against humanity is a big deal. I mean, this is a big threshold for them to act, and they're not going to do it lightly. The Vatican's jurisdiction, the jurisdiction of the ICC over the Vatican is a bit different, but because this action took this took place in Canada, it all comes together. So it's a, um, it's, it's very doable. Um, it's been done in other cases, um, dreadful cases like this, and, and they, they just they know what to do. So mm-hmm. let's get it done. Let's deal with it. All right. So we're early on here. I mean, the letter's just been sent, but has there been any kind of response either from the ICC or, or from the federal government? Not from either the federal. It's, it was sent to the federal government and, and it's 
specifically it was sent to um, the uh, Canadian Minister of Justice. That would make okay. sense. And we have not heard. We just said it at 5.30 this morning. And what we are doing, Rob, is we've, we started to ask for other lawyers to put their signature on the dotted line um, last, late last night. And uh, we've got we've been just delighted by the response. And any lawyer in Canada, um, Indigenous or otherwise, who's interested in this, can put their name on on this application. And I think the more the better. It's something that lawyers can do. Um, all of us have a sphere of influence, something that we're good at or able to do. And and this is this is something a lawyer can do. And I, I really think it's important. Uh, you know. I went back, Murray um, Sinclair has done this little 10-minute spot that I really encourage your listeners to find and listen to. And it's about, you know, what he unearthed with the TRC and what he thinks is going on now. And it prompted me to go back to one of his earlier speeches. and, And he said, when he was finishing up in the Senate, he said, you know, we have described for you, and he's talking to Canadians, we have described for you a mountain we have shown you the way to the top, and we call upon you to do the climbing. And I guess that's what we're doing here, saying to lawyers, it's time for you to do some climbing. We've, we're trained to do this. We're trained to hold people to account. We need to do it. And I, you know, I'm not getting paid to do this. This really matters. This, this is something we can do. Yeah. Well, we'll leave it there for now. We'll continue to follow this. Donna Kennedy Glantz, thanks for joining us here this afternoon. Much appreciated. Thank you, Rob. Bye-bye. All the best. Uh, there you go. That is uh, Donna Kennedy Glantz, one of the lawyers who was uh, signed on to this letter, of course, was an MLA uh, from uh, 2012 to 2015, was a cabinet minister. She's also worked in the energy industry, founded a nonprofit that works with First Nations Reserves in Alberta. So uh, she believes this is uh, important, and she has uh, added her name to this. So the letter reads in part here, the complainants submit the deaths, mass unmarked grave, general treatment of the 215 deceased children constitute crimes against humanity. The complainants also submit it is likely other such mass graves exist elsewhere in Canada in or around other residential schools and have been covered up by the government of Canada and or the Vatican, their agents, employees or actors. Aboriginal people of Canada and all people of Canada need assurance that the agents, employees, and actors of the government of Canada and the Vatican behind these crimes against humanity are subject to justice. Now, obviously, many of those particular individuals are long dead. But it is also true that we don't know. We don't know the answers to these questions. And welcome back. Rob Regenridge with you. We're going to hear from Dr. Hinshaw coming up at uh, 3.30 today. We'll have that update uh, live for you. I want to talk a bit more about vaccines. And look, the good news is that vaccines work. The good news is that they work for all known variants of concern. Uh, There is some some news coming out of the UK we should pay attention to. This, I guess we're now calling it the Delta variant that they're dealing with there. That only seems to be uh, more transmissible than the one we call Alpha might even result in in more serious illness. So we're trying to better understand it. But it's just a reminder that, look, we got to get people vaccinated, fully vaccinated. So Alberta is pivoting to second doses, and this is an ideal time to do so. Part of that pivot obviously involves addressing the situation for those who got the AstraZeneca shot as a first dose. Alberta, like other provinces, is taking a more of a flexible approach, that those individuals can choose to get AstraZeneca as a second dose, can also choose instead, though, to get Pfizer or Moderna. 
And that's something we're trying to still, as we go along, better understand the impact of that. So far, the indications look positive, but it's important to understand. There's also the question, too, I guess, that we don't know what that demand's going to be. Might AstraZeneca doses go to waste, for example? Uh, joining us to talk more about uh, some of these issues, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Dr. Lenore Saxinger, uh, Associate Professor in Infectious Diseases at the uh, University of Alberta Department of Medicine. Dr. Saxinger, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Uh, so I, I mentioned, I guess we're calling it the, the Delta variant, the B16172. Um, you know, certainly it seems like something we should be paying close attention to. What are you seeing so far? Uh, well, I mean, we just started doing surveillance for this strain specifically, and I think we might be the first place in Canada that's got a rapid PCR screen available for it. So yeah. we might get into a position where we seem to have really high numbers of it, but it might just be that we're finding it more efficiently. So we'll see what happens with that over the next week or two. But in the UK, where they'd had the B117 surge, which is kind of where we're at now, now they're seeing hot spots arise with this variant and, you know, having to alter things to keep it contained. So I think it tells us that we have to stay light on our feet and be ready to change things um, as we try to get through this end game stage. Yeah, absolutely. And again, it's a reminder, look, I mean, you know, getting a lot of first doses out to, to individuals, that, that was a strategy that made sense, still makes sense. But it's a reminder that that's not the finish line, right? We got to get people fully vaccinated. Absolutely. I mean, there there is data, especially for that variant, that the second dose um, really does increase protection against that variant. And for, you know, the other variants where the first dose is really quite protective anyway, the second dose really locks in and extends the protection. So yeah. it, it's important either way, um, but it's especially important if we're worried about this starting to take hold. The more second doses that we can get in, the the less likely we'll have it take hold, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And, and again, look, I mean, part of the reason we have some flexibility now is because a, a lot of Albertans, you know, stepped up and got the AstraZeneca vaccine when it was available. It's been, I, I think, some obviously some uncertainty, maybe some frustration at some of the mixed messages. But in terms of how we're choosing to address that now going forward, does it seem like a, a reasonable response? Absolutely. I mean, like the I think the people who Agreed to get AstraZeneca. That was the that was still a good decision. And now that they're facing the choice of what to do for dose two with options available, it really is going to depend on how they weigh the the evolving information that's coming forward. I don't think that it's possible to make a a recommendation that this is clearly the right thing to do. You have to weigh off a couple things. One of them is um, the weight of the experience with AstraZeneca vaccine as a successful vaccine has been with two-dose AstraZeneca vaccine, optimally about three, mo three months apart. Um, and then the only data that we have on the switch strategy suggests that it's likely safe that you might have a higher immune response on a lab-based immunity response, but there's not really clinical data on it yet. And um, so it depends on how you, you, you look at those two factors and that, again, we're going to be making decisions along the way uh, with the best information that we have. Well, yeah, and that, that's the thing. And I mean, it, it's understandable that we're taking that approach. Uh, obviously, there, there is that risk, though, that, you know, not knowing how much, for example, how much AstraZeneca we're going to need right now. And if the demand starts to shift toward the mRNA vaccines, you know, do we run the risk of, of wasting doses that could be put to use elsewhere, maybe? 
Well, that would be very regrettable because, I mean, right now, um, you know, every vaccine is 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 a potential life saved somewhere. And so yeah. we don't want to waste doses. But having said that, our, our supplies of Pfizer, as projected by the federal government, are really quite robust. And I'm really hoping that we figure out a way to, to make sure that we're distributing vaccines that aren't being used in a, you know, timely way so that they're used somewhere but by someone who will benefit and so and so I, I do think that there's a lot of different factors at play um and when people ask me i kind of talk about well you know you could get the second astrazeneca i think that's completely supportable you could also take an mrna vaccine and based on the current data which is still evolving that's supportable it might it might prove to be a benefit it might not we're not really sure yet yeah, and I mean, you know, when it comes to mixing doses, I mean, obviously we want to make sure the safety side is is addressed, and and there's better data on that. Um, in in theory, there there should be efficacy because even though they're different kinds of vaccines, they're, they're kind of doing the same thing. There's some initial data that that backs that up, but what, what do we still need to understand on that side? Well, I, I think that I mean that the gap comes between the lab studies that tell us that you might get, and, and they're not necessarily direct, but there seems to be a really good antibiotic. At, antibiotic antibody weapons um, or um, or cell mediated response after the switch dosing strategy and other vaccines where we know that you know kind of using a different delivery system to tickle your immune system against a pathogen sometimes gives you a little bit of a benefit too um, but you know if you really want the clinical effectiveness data we're not going to have the effectiveness data on the switch study for a while whereas we have lots of effectiveness data on on AstraZeneca boosted with AstraZeneca and so yeah. so it really depends on what lens you bring to bear on it. And um, and we are going to keep on learning more. But for a lot of people right now where they're in the timing where the second dose is, is kind of due and they're going to make a choice, I would just say I don't think that there's a wrong choice. I think that there's different different varieties of right choices, really. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because, I, I mean, I'm someone who, who, A, had AstraZeneca as a first dose and, B, actually had COVID uh, in, in November. So... Um, I mean, I'm kind of looking at it as, do I want to take a, an mRNA vaccine away from someone else? Um, you know, at the same time, I mean, you know, there's compelling evidence that, you know, previous infection combined with one dose is, is something. So maybe I wait or maybe I'll just I'll get the AstraZeneca as a second dose. It's um, so, yeah, I think all of those things come into play for people. And, you know, you, yeah, you probably have auto-boosted now with your first dose. And so, so that is an important thing. I guess the other thing is um, we, we've maintained a really very amazingly good pace of, of vaccination rollout in Alberta. At some point, we're going to start to see that tail off. Um, and, and what we don't want is a bunch of vaccines sitting around. And so for some people, um, you know, they might choose to wait for a little while. But, uh, but if we find that there's unused vaccination appointment availability, there's a net positive to the population to going going through and getting your dose rather than waiting or reserving it for someone else, which is a very Canadian kind of impulse, honestly. Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, there was obviously, you know, the, the thrombosis side or VITT, as, as we call it, and, you know, the rare side effects that we know a lot more about and we know what to watch for. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, from what the data tells us, there, there's a lot, there's a lower risk when it comes to the second dose versus the first dose. Is that what we understand? That genuinely looks to be true. I think where there's a little bit more controversy is how frequent the overall um, VIT is because depending on how, how they've looked for it and how carefully they've looked for it, um, the, the rate of it seems to vary. And it seems to be settling out at a lower number than we originally 
um, at a, I guess, a higher number per population than we originally guessed. But it really does seem to be mostly a phenomenon of the first dose in that if you didn't get it with the first dose, it seems quite unlikely, but not impossible that you would get it with the second dose. Mm-hmm. And the overall rate remains very, very low. So I don't think that there's there's really a big safety signal for choosing to get AstraZeneca as the second dose, except that you can't say it's zero risk. We can't really say anything zero risk. But no, exactly. we also know that getting COVID is not zero risk either. So um, so that that is actually a bit of a reassuring story for people who are looking at getting second dose AstraZeneca. I think the, the bigger other considerations are effectiveness against these emerging variants. And again, there the data is just starting to come in and it might keep on changing. So so we just have to do the best we can with what we know right now. Yeah, great point. We'll leave it there for now. Uh, Dr. Saxinger, appreciate the insight. Thanks for making some time for us here. No problem. Thank you. All right. Uh, there you go. That's Dr. Lenora Saxinger, University of Alberta Department of Medicine, Associate Professor, uh, focusing on infectious diseases. So her thoughts on the two-dose strategy, why we really need to, to move quickly in this direction. You know, we, we missed the boat a few months ago when it came to the uh, B117, which I guess is now alpha. I don't know if this whole Greek alphabet thing is going to catch on, but I think we're in a much better position this time around. Right, Public libraries should be a place where you can go uh, and, and read about all sorts of different things and, and expose yourself to different or controversial ideas. You know, even books like Mein Kampf, you should still be able to find in a, in a public library. Now, that's not to say that public libraries are endorsing every single book and every single viewpoint contained in those books on their shelves. But I think, you know, it it is problematic if we start to make that assumption. What's going to be left then in these public libraries if we've now decided that the libraries are, by virtue of having those books in their libraries, endorsing the content? There's going to be a lot fewer books on the shelves, and I don't know that that's a good thing. If there are certain books or certain viewpoints that are problematic, I think there are different ways of countering or, or challenging all of that. Which brings us to this latest controversy. And this is uh, in Halifax. As we kick off Pride Month here in the month of June, this has become linked to that. Because Halifax Pride has officially boycotted and urged others to join this boycott of Halifax Public Libraries. And this concerns a particular book by a particular individual. The book in question is called Irreversible Damage, The Transgender Craze Seducing Our Daughters. The author is Abigail Schreier. Now, this has been a controversial book, a provocative book, and certainly there are a lot of people who have pushed back on some of the points and the arguments that uh, Ms. Schreier makes in the book. Again, the Halifax Public Library isn't endorsing that book by having it on the shelves, but the fact that it remains on the shelf is what's led to this boycott. There was a really interesting piece in the National Post today, though, pushing back on this idea. Uh, Adam Zivo uh, writes, as an LGBTQ activist myself, I find the behavior of pride festivals across Canada disappointingly reckless. He's also a digital content producer. You can read more from him. He's up, uh, it's up at nationalpost.com today. And he joins us on the line here this afternoon to talk more about this issue. Uh, Adam? So great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, so let's talk about this situation in Halifax. What, what concerns you about it most in, in the response to how the Halifax Public Library has handled this? 
Well, so I find that Halifax Pride's attitude towards uh, the, the library is a little bit reckless and short-sighted, and within a broader historical context is actually deeply hypocritical. Um, it's important to remember that freedom of expression is something which has been integral to minority groups which are advocating for their rights. Uh, freedom of expression was essential to early LGBT activists by protecting them from censorship, whether that censorship came from society or from the government. In Toronto, for example, in the 70s and 80s, you had something called Gay Days, which were early forms of LGBT activism wherein LGBT people came into public parks to be visible and to advocate for their rights. Now, there was pushback from some politicians at the time who felt that this was inappropriate and should be banned. But freedom of expression nullified those objections and ensured that people had the freedom to express their political beliefs um, without any undue restrictions. The same applied, for example, uh, to the misuse of pornography laws, uh, which was often used in the 70s and 80s to ban LGBT cultural publications, saying that by having any gay content, it was obscene. And LGBT activists successfully used freedom of expression to argue that they should have the right to publicly express these views, regardless if some found it objectionable. So to have, you know, a community which historically has relied on this important principle and freedom, you know, now at this point, abandon it when it is no longer useful to them is, is concerning. And, and I say this as someone who has, you know, engaged in extensive activism for about six to seven years at this point. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's interesting because you mentioned, you know, the, the, some of these issues. I mean, we had uh, the case of the uh, Little Sisters uh, bookstore in Vancouver went all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada. This, this was a big moment in terms of LGBTQ activism in Canada and pushing back on, on some of those homophobic laws. And you're right. I mean, that, that was a case that was entirely about freedom of expression, pushing back against the idea of trying to ban books. And, and mm-hmm. you know, here we are now in 2021, and it feels like, you know, we've, kind of come full circle in a weird way. Well, so in my article in the National Post, I tie this to a larger transformation in the character of LGBT activism, which over the past five to six years has become a bit more aggressive and coercive. Uh, whereas, let's say in the 2000s, early 2010s, it was more conciliatory and diplomatic. Um, and so over the past five, six years, you've seen more of an embrace of coercive methods of activism uh, rather than activism that seeks to persuade and explain. And so this is troublesome because that new form of activism has been ineffective. Uh, there was an infamous study done in 2019 by GLAAD, which is a national LGBT organization based in the United States, which shows that uh, comfort with LGBT people is declining, particularly in younger populations, at least in the U.S., though it's hard to imagine that Canada would be too different from the U.S. Um, And based on just Internet culture and surfing, you know, anti-LGBT forums, it seems like a major motivator of that is this, is people catching on to the fact the LGBT community is becoming a bit more aggressive and militant in a way that does make people feel uncomfortable. And so with Halifax Pride, you know, not only are there actions you know, historically inconsistent, or sorry, 
hypocritical and sort of inconsistent with historical uh, attitudes towards freedom of expression from LGBT communities. It also endangers LGBT communities uh, achieving the opposite of what, you know, these prides are supposed to do. It's interesting. It was a controversy back in 2019 involving the Toronto Public Library, and you, you noted in your piece, I actually wrote a commentary for Global News uh, at the time, and I, you know, the headline of my piece was, we should expect public libraries to be on the side of freedom of expression. And I did get a lot of response and, and people wondering, well, why are you, you know, supporting this uh, Megan Murphy, who was at the center of this controversy? Why are you defending her views? I said, well, I'm not. I mean, you know, the, the more we try to to ban her, obviously, I think the more attention she's going to get. But, you know, and, and I wonder if you're running into the same thing here. Are you being accused now of uh, defending this book or defending the views of Abigail Schreier by, you know, sticking up for the Halifax Public Library here? Uh, well, I mean, thankfully, for after this article, I haven't gotten any kind of pushback there. Um, I did get pushback in Toronto in 2019 when I made some social media commentary in defense of Toronto libraries. Um, and, and But the thing is, I'm mostly insulated from that because I do have an extensive history of LGBT activism. Yeah. Uh, that being said, you know, I think it's important for people to remember that defending freedom of expression means defending it, its neutrality, right? Um, if you only defend freedom of expression for things that you like, then freedom of expression becomes hollow. Freedom of expression is supposed to be neutral and to give people the ability to articulate their beliefs regardless of its content, unless those beliefs are directly hateful or harmful. And, and so that actually ties into one of the points that I made in my article, which is that, yes, there are limits to freedom of expression. You know, you can't go into a library and start giving a speech you know, advocating for genocide or something horrible like that, because hate speech is not tolerated in our society. But at the same time, the question is, you know, what counts as unacceptable hate speech? And that's something which is defined by the government after careful consideration of different stakeholders and nuanced issues. And if you believe that something is so hateful that it shouldn't be allowed to publicly exist, the appropriate thing to do is to lobby to redefine what counts as inappropriately hateful and to prove that case in a way that is that involves some sort of legal and societal consultation. What these pride festivals are doing essentially is trying to unilaterally condemn something as unacceptably hateful without properly justifying what that is. Yeah, and it seems almost counterproductive in a way. I mean, it's it's one thing to call out Abigail Schreier and say, you know, there's this this author and she wrote this book and she's saying a lot of, you know, incorrect and dangerous things about uh, transgendered youth and this isn't helpful to a conversation and this needs to be called out and denounced. That, that, that would be fair game, I think. But, you know, by dragging the Halifax Public Library into this, I, I, I do wonder, at the end of the day, I mean, even if they were to succeed and the Halifax Public Library relents and they forever take this book off, off their shelves, has the cause of LGBTQ rights and equality really been advanced in that context? Um, I, I wouldn't necessarily say so. Um, or I say that if there, if there is any advancement, it would come at too large of a cost which is that these important neutral rights given to all Canadians should be maintained no matter what. And to undermine freedom of expression for a small game like that doesn't seem wise. 
And it's interesting because to me, I mean, it I, seems like, yeah, no, go ahead. Finish your thought there. I'm oh, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, it's okay. I was just going to say, I mean, you know, that it is Pride Month, you know, is, is a great jumping off point to, you know, having these conversations. And, and I think sort of in a way, you know, winning that argument where people who have, you know, these controversial, polarizing or just incorrect views are, are kind of losing that, you know, the battle for, for hearts and minds, as it were, right? And, and it, it just feels like there, there's much more productive ways of advancing these causes. I, I don't know that, you know, as, as you said, mm-hmm. that this might just end up being more counterproductive than anything. Well, well, that's the thing, right, is that if you want to, if you want to solve this problem, then, you know, your duty is to persuade people why these views are incorrect, you know, to talk to them, to ask why they believe it, to go through the facts together. Uh, so you actually change their beliefs rather than just suppress outward expressions of those beliefs. When you just suppress people without actually trying to change the underlying beliefs, then all you do is create resentment and anger. And I think that that abdication of that duty to persuade is part of the reason why we are seeing some backlash against LGBTQ rights, uh, you know, going back to that affirmation GLAD study from 2019. So I, I think that, you know, it's, it's harder and it's less emotionally satisfying to do that, but that would be the more productive thing to do. Absolutely. Well, again, we'll direct people to nationalpost.com. Uh, your piece is up today and uh, much more at adamzevo.com. Adam, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate the conversation. Thank you for having me. All right, take care. That's uh, Adam Zevo, uh, digital content producer, activist, and uh, he's got a column today in the National Post, nationalpost.com, that I think is well worth reading. That, you know, even if we don't like a certain author or a certain book, and that doesn't mean you have to bite your tongue and not criticize that author or that book. By all means, you know, if, if someone has written something that you think is, um, you know, in, in need of being denounced, then denounce it. If I come on this radio and I give an opinion you think is, is ridiculous, then say so. But I think we got to respect what public libraries are supposed to represent. And in most cases, I would think that public libraries should err on the, con- on the side of keeping content, keeping books available. But if somebody wants to do a, a you know, whole big write-up on why this book by this author is misguided and wrong and terrible and all of those things, they should be able to go to a public library and get the book for themselves so that they can read it, they can refer to it, they can quote from it, they can respond directly to certain points in order to counter it, right? You, you fight speech with speech. So it, it is tragically ironic. I think that's, that's part of Adam's central point here is that so much of the fight for LGBTQ rights in Canada has involved freedom of expression. And the case that went all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada, Little Sisters Book and Art Emporium, was such an important case. And really not just an important case for LGBTQ rights in Canada, but an important case for freedom of expression. And it really is sad that we've just kind of lost those lessons. The roles have been reversed here. Right back then, it was kind of the, the cultural right that was trying to suppress these, um, you know, these, these books. They were seen as dangerous or provocative. And it was kind of the left at the time that was fighting for freedom of expression. And it feels like those roles have been reversed here. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. 
You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.